0: Hello and welcome to another episode of ERG Power Talk. I'm your host, Joe Santana. That song clip you just heard is from Somewhere I Belong by a band called Lincoln Park, and it was originally released on March 17, 2003. The lyrics cry out about a deep-seated need that every single one of us has, the need to belong. It's a need that Maslow, the American psychologist, placed dead center in his pyramid of five basic human needs, and that the anthropologist Margaret Mead actually thought should be considered even more pressing and more powerful than our physiological needs and our need for safety, which Maslow placed in the number one and number two slots on his pyramid. And the benefits of satisfying this need are indeed well documented. Being with other people who we feel bonded to through common cause and or social identity can be the cause of happiness. They can buffer us from stress and make us feel supported while giving us a sense of being part of something bigger than ourselves and promoting a sense of continuity. Unfortunately, there is also a negative side to bonding with others like us. In fact, we recently had a powerful demonstration of this negative side on January 6, 2021 in the United States. the familiar sounds of the capital insurrection carried out by the bonded supporters of a president who did not accept his loss of an election and turned on our country in a vicious attack that cost lives and ruined the very lives of many of the participants. Those sounds of hate, unfortunately, also spring from that same powerful force that makes us want to cleave to those with whom we feel we belong. Why does that happen? How and what can you do to prevent this evil side of bonding from emerging and taking root? in your community, in your organization? How can we attain a sense of belonging with those like us while still enjoying the openness of inclusion with those who are different from us? Those will be the topics we cover with our guest today in this final season episode of ERG Power Talk. But before he joins us, let's take a moment to revisit our mission and acknowledge our sponsors. <laughs> This is ERG Power Talk, and I'm your host, Joe Santana. The purpose of ERG Power Talk is to provide a forum for the exchange of great ideas and inspiration for ERG leaders, as well as others who are interested in supporting ERGs. No more waiting until the next conference and praying that you have the budget to travel to the conference in order to find great ideas and stimulation toward action. Just subscribe and listen at your convenience. Before we begin, a quick note of thanks to our supporters and sponsors, Behringer Ingelheim, CVS Health, Dollar General, Frederick Health and Wisconsin Medical College, Mass Mutual, McCormick, Johnson Controls, Pitney Bowes, Daimler Trucks North America, and Sony Pictures Entertainment. Now, let's go straight to the program. Our guest today is a published author of several insightful books, a lifelong social justice advocate, a unifier of people, and the founder of a company that for close to three decades has been helping organizations through transformation. He's a recipient of more awards than I can hope to enumerate in this short hour, and someone I'm proud to call a friend. <sighs>
1: Thanks, Joe. Hi, I'm Howard Ross. I'm uh, I'm now the co-founder of Udarta Consulting, and I've been doing consulting, as you said, Joe, in organizational culture development and diversity, inclusion and belonging for about 36 years now.
0: Hey, Howard, it's always great talking with you, and it's a pleasure having you back on the show again. Howard, in 2018, you release your book that goes right to the heart of what we're talking about today. It's titled, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. Tell us what inspired you to write this book.
1: Most of my work has, has been driven by curiosity, Joe. You and I have talked about this in the past and that that in this particular case, the thing that really drove me more than anything else was looking at, it was about two two 2014 maybe or so and 2015 when I started really looking into this and I've been looking into human motivation because of the research on the work on unconscious bias and more and more of this issue of the need to belong have loomed larger and larger in terms of understanding human behavior And then the thing that triggered me was when I looked at the polarization that was happening in our society and even felt myself getting pulled into it, as sometimes I do. I'm sure you do also. It's so easy to get sucked into this. And my curiosity had me say, how is it that we so want to connect with each other and yet we're so tribal? And, And that was really at the source of really understanding what it is about human beings that have them do that.
0: Yeah, for sure. I felt that tribal pull myself. So Howard, in your book, you use the terms bonded groups versus the concept of bridging. And I think these are important terms to understand in order to fully engage in this conversation. And I also think they're really valuable terms for our listeners who are ERG community leaders, since ERGs by their nature tend to be primarily bonded groups that are also seeking to bridge people as part of their mission. So let's focus first on bonded groups.
1: It very much ties into the whole purpose of ERGs and and the reason that ERGs can provide such an incredible um, service to organizations. And these are distinctions, by the way, I want to just acknowledge. These are distinctions that come from the work of the brilliant Harvard sociologist, Robert Putnam, who has, I think for years, been one of our leading academics relative to researching social capital and the way that people engage. And, and back in, I think it was around 1999 like or 2000 when he wrote his book, Bowling Alone. And he identified these two different ways that human beings tend to, to group with each other or, or connect with each other uh, socially, one of the bonded groups. And bonded groups tend to be groups that we co-identify with. In some cases, that can be our family, if we're lucky, if we're fortunate enough to have a family in which people really support each other. And, and we all know that's not always the case. Sometimes it can be an identity. So for example, I often use the example of when African-Americans meet each other on the street, the nod that they often give to each other. It's a little bit like we're in this together, the sense that what happens to you is likely to happen to me or could very well happen to me or affects what happens to me because we are co-identified. It could be our religion. It could even be something like a deep personal bond of relationships that's been created over an extended period of time. So for example, I have a friend who has a group of people who went to college with and he's our age, Joe, and yet for 50 years, every year they get together and spend a week together no matter where they are. And he said to me, um, he said, That's the most bonded relationship in my life. He said, they know me from way before I was anything and they know my BS. They'll call me out on my BS. Nobody else will. And no matter what I do, they're going to love me. So it's those kind of relationships that you fall back into, those bonded relationships that sort of help define who we are and are the, the, the strongest and most grounded and safest relationships in our life. But then we also have relationships where we bridge across those differences, where we bridge across the differences of family, of race, of identity, or whatever else. And and we create relationships with people that can also be very sustaining. They're bridging relationships. And and, and these bridging relationships are are so important. The bridge to those those kinds of relationships are so important because that's how our social capital expands beyond our group. Now, the challenge is, that we can either have bonding and bridging for positive reasons or for negative reasons. And historically, those bonded relationships for positive reasons are very healthy. We pull, The ERG is a very great example of a healthy bonded relationship. We pull together a group of people who have a common interest, they have a common identity, they see the world in a particular framework from that reference, and they come together to support each other, to share ideas, to move things through the organization, and to contribute to the organization from that particular identity. But we know if all we do is continue to have that, then we're going to have tribes within our organization, clans of this person and this person. So it's the relationship between those that really expands that beyond our particular identity. Got it. And I think it's that concern
0: about tribalism that has led some organizations who all leave unnamed to decide not to have ERGs. They're afraid of the groups becoming insular tribes that don't effectively bridge or connect to other parts of the organization. But in your book, you point out that this type of tribalism emerges when people are bonded together against other groups, as opposed to being bonded together for each other, which leaves them open to
1: bridging. Talk a little bit about that. I think this is the important point, is that when we begin to get into relationships where we're bonded against in other words, we're not bonded for something; we're bonded against them. That's where we see the kind of tribalism we have in our society right now, which is the left is bonded against the right, the right is bonded against the left, and and there doesn't there's not a lot of space in there for any bridging when you're bonding against something. Give us an example of that. I think that we're seeing I think that we've seen we're seeing that very clearly in our politics right now, where you've got you've got the extremes of both parties, and it doesn't where you are. I affiliate, and I think we step back from it, get out of the circumstance, and look at it from a more meta standpoint you've got these two extremes in the parties you've got the the progressive left and the, the trumpian right whatever you want to call that i don't think conservatives really politically the appropriate term because the politics aren't really conservative but and then you've got a whole lot of people who are in the middle in fact there's no question that the largest percentage of people don't associate with the extremes they associate with that larger gray area in the middle that runs from we might say liberal to more traditional conservative and everything in between But what's happened is because the extremes, and there are lots of reasons for that, which we can get into in a bit, because the the extremes now so define both sides, in order to, to fit, in order to be bonded, You can't be somebody in the middle, in in a lot of cases, who compromises. So we see this in the recent events of Republicans struggling to know how to respond to um, the president's actions on January 6th, and people who would, under normal circumstance, have no problem saying, which is completely inappropriate, that the president went around for two months saying, telling a lie about the election, and in doing so undermined our democratic processes. You would think that somebody who'd spent their entire life in public service, like a congressperson or a senator, would would have an easy time saying, No, you went over the line here. This is just you've gone over the line. But if there's only two extremes, and you're either this or that, then you find people who get mealy-mouthed all of a sudden, and they say one thing and the next day they backtrack it a little bit. And anybody who took that position, Liz Cheney comes to mind, a hardcore conservative, obviously no friend of liberals over the years. But because she just said, I've had enough, this is it, I'm gonna, I'm he's crossed the line. Now They're talking about primarying her because she's not part of the tribe anymore. She varied. And so we can see that bonding becomes very confining and very tight. And the same thing, of course, is true for for hardcore progressives on the left who who would never accept Biden because of things that he did 40 years ago, or because he's not as his politics aren't quite as um progressive as Bernie or Elizabeth Warren's or something like that. So this is the challenge: is that when there's no middle ground tribalism can't help but flourish. And we, of course, are in the throes of that right now.
0: That's a great example. And I think it's important for us to also be aware that those forces that we're observing in others are also operating in us. If all we do is cleave to our bonded group members without ever connecting with others outside that chosen group, we will feel that invisible pull away from doing things or taking positions that might be
1: more reasonable. Do you agree? No question. No question. In fact, one of the things that we know is that there's a phenomenon, a human phenomenon, that's been called the outgroup homogeneity effect. It was um, at first um, identified by a guy named Henri Tajfel, and basically, what he he found was that when you take people and you ask them to evaluate a group outside of themselves, they tend to think, as the word sounds, homogeneity effect. They tend to think that everybody in that group is the same. So, so for example, coming from a position more on the political left, I would, I might look at that people on the political right. So they're all the same. They're all, and and given the politics we're in, that usually means we associate them with the most extreme. So people on the left will say everybody on the right is. A racist or a nativist or whatever we want to call it people on the right would say everybody on the left is a socialist or antifa or whatever it is neither of which is true obviously we know that neither of those things is true but the, this is the way the mind sees groups and the more and the less interconnection there is the more the tribalization happens the more the outgroup homogeneity effect occurs so the less chance we have to interact with people for who they are the more we treat them like what they are so if i don't have any healthy relationships You know, coming from my own political standpoint, which is more on the Democratic left let's say, if I don't have any healthy relationships with people who are on the Republican, then they all become caricatures. And it's much easier for me to, to put them into that caricature because they're not anymore John and Sally and Marty and Paul or whoever else. They're now just Republicans and everything associated with that. So everything we're talking about continues to contribute to this tribal divide deeper and deeper.
0: So Howard, what are some of the things that you've seen organizations with ERGs as well as ERG leaders do to create conditions that avoid these divides, to create the types of conditions that enable group members to really enjoy valuable bonding without forsaking the benefits of bridging?
1: I think first, we first look at the structure of individual groups, and then we can talk more about the collective structure of groups. So from the standpoint of individual groups, one of the things that a lot of the more more advanced organizations that I know around this issue are um, doing is starting to have groups that are ERGs, that are not so much identity driven, but they're more issue driven. So for example, instead of having a women's ERG, you could have a gender equity ERG in which men and women or people who define themselves as gender fluid can participate because they're all committed to gender equity together. Now that doesn't mean that you can't still have opportunities for people to do some gender or some bonding with their own gender. So for example, there's one organization I know that does this. And what they do is they have their meeting, they have the gender equity ERG come together. The first hour of the meeting is the men are in one room and the women are in another and they you know, allow anybody to to define how they want to in terms of their own gender um, identification. And then they talk about what they're seeing from that perspective and then they come together for the second part of the meeting and they share what their perspective was and together collectively they look at what actions they might want to recommend or what actions they might want to take. So they still hold on to the value of that safety that occurs in that, you know, same group bonding. But they also recognize that we have to bridge to the other and that our biggest issue, and in order to really make a difference, is when we have all people who care about this issue being able to speak out. And I think this is one of the challenges that happens. I know there's been, for example, of late, there's been a question again, which comes up. At different times during our during years of my tenure in this industry, we both collectively probably put in our seventy years collectively doing this work, Joe. And we know that there have been times when people said white people shouldn't talk about race, and no, no, it's important for white people to talk about race. We I mean, should, white people should. So now we're back in those places where some people saying that white people shouldn't talk about race. I gotta say, for me, that makes no sense. I'm Jewish, and and I want everybody talking about anti-Semitism. I don't want just Jews talking about anti-Semitism. I want everybody talking about why anti-Semitism is bad. And I feel the same way about race. I, mean, I happen to have four, grand- four of my six grandchildren are of mixed race. So for me, it's very personal in addition to that. So I think that's the one side within the groups. That's one way that we can you know, begin to bridge even while we're in the groups. And then the second way, if we look more collectively at these groups and organizations, is how can we have those groups take on some collective projects together to visit each other's meetings, to share ideas with each other, to have members from All of the groups each come together in a central group, which recognizes the connections that they are and can support each other. So that these groups, rather than living as silos out here, living in a more interconnected, almost a web interaction where they're constantly doing that. And that includes bringing in some of the leaders of the organization so that we bridge to them as well, whether they're in that same group identity or not. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. And I think one of the reasons people sometimes... Um, get challenged by this notion of trying new strategies for ERGs is that we're afraid we're going to lose something that's been a value to us, which is completely understandable because in a lot of organizations, those ERGs are a lifeline, a, a, almost like an oasis where people can come. So I'm not suggesting that we lose that. I'm just saying we can build on that to also do more bridging so that we're really expanding our influence and network of the organization.
0: Those are great examples. What are some other ways that you've seen group leaders and organizations operate in ways that keep the best of bonding and bridging for their resource groups?
1: I've seen other groups where they'll have some closed meetings and some open meetings. And some places they have structures for that where they'll have you have your meetings, but then you have regular times when the at least leadership from the different ERGs come together to be together. So I, I think that you we can be very creative about this. I think it's when we start with a both end mindset. So the the part of us that bonds against others, the part of us wants to have our safe space is basically driven by fear. We feel like we have to maintain this safe space only for us because otherwise we won't have any time to get we, we won't be able to survive as well in the organization. So we circle around and and we close ranks around ourselves to keep ourselves safe and protected. And of course, we know in the early days, that's one of the real functions that affinity groups serve. Affinity groups were the one place you could come in and you could relax and be yourself. It's a little bit like, I was at Beverly Beverly Hills Tatum wrote that, that piece about that book about why is it that all the kids sit together in the cafeteria or something. Why is it that all the kids of color were sitting together in the cafeteria? Because the cafeteria during the day was the one place I can, let's say, speak Spanish and not have to, be seen as an outsider, or I can be in my own culture. And 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 I think a lot of people, for example, go a lot of students go to HBCUs for that very reason. When I taught at Bennett College for a year, I had students in my classes who could have gone to Ivy League schools, literally one was accepted to Princeton, one to Williams, and, uh, there were a couple others. And they chose to come to an HBCU because they in all of those cases had grown up in predominantly white communities where they were the considered to be the minority of the outsider. And they really wanted to experience what it was like to be in a community that was more homogeneous, where they were one of people like themselves. So we have these different poles at different times in their life, and there's no reason we can't do these things in a variety of ways to meet those various needs.
0: So Howard, what role do you think organizations should take to make sure that things run well within these ERGs?
1: First of all, I, I think it's reasonable for an organization to sit down with the leadership of the ERGs or when they're structuring the ERGs and have make a really clear statement of um, what we're trying to accomplish. What are the objectives of this? Is, is it just for a place for people to go so they can connect with each other? Do we really see this as contributing to the organization? I know that are they're, their organization's all around the world now, in which these ERGs, I, I know just off the top of my head, I know Cisco was doing a great job about this. The Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins was doing a great job. There are a number of organizations that have been doing a great job of having these ERGs really be an employee resource. And as you, because you've forgotten more about ERGs, Joe, than I'll ever know, but sometimes these ERGs are ERGs in name only. They're really functioning still as affinity groups, but the new name is ERG. And then there's sometimes when the groups are really ERGs, they really are a resource to the organization. And so the organization, which is committing they're giving people their time to do this, in a lot of cases they're, they're supporting the functioning of it, do have a right to say, let's make sure we're clear what our objective is in doing this. And I think that helps to do that right at the beginning. And then once we know the objective, then we can look at what are we doing and say, is it meeting that objective? If the objective is just give people a safe space so that they have some place to go, then you could take a much more laissez-faire attitude and say, enjoy, how it all goes well. If on the other hand, you're really looking to hope and hoping that the ERG work will have a real impact on the organization and what you're doing in terms of building inclusion and belonging in the organization, then a little bit more coordination makes sense. But even then I recommend that it's an invitation, not forcing people, but inviting people to do a certain thing.
0: I totally agree. My own experience is that the more context the organization provides in terms of what the group is for, how it benefits employees, members, the community, and the organization, the more positively they can influence the group without having to be heavy-handed. So here's my take on what Howard and I have been talking about in this first half of our discussion. 1. ERGs, by their nature, are groups of people that share some common elements of social identity or focus that brings them together as a bonded group. 2. As such, ERGs provide a valuable service to organizations by supporting the needs of their members to connect with others who are like them. Three, but to truly live up to the goal of helping the organization and the community to become more inclusive, ERGs have to remain open to bridging in people who are not part of the bonded group. Four, the key to having a group that supports a particular dimension of diversity without becoming insular and tribal and locking out others who do not share that dimension of diversity is to make sure that they are groups that are not bonded against others. Howard's example from politics was how extreme right-wing people are bonded against the left while some equally extreme left-wing people are bonded against the right. And finally, 5. Organizations can take steps to avoid having closed groups that become tribal by providing clear context as to what they expect from the groups that they host within their organizations. In the next part of this discussion, we are going to focus on the kind of personal development needed by the ERG leaders as well as the ERG group itself as a mini organization in order to ensure healthy groups that enjoy the full benefits of bonding and bridging. All of this and more when we come back. But first, a little more about Howard Ross, as well as other opportunities for you to continue to develop yourself as a leader. I'll see you on the other side. Howard Ross is a lifelong social justice advocate and has more than 35 years of experience in facilitating transformational leadership and creating cultures of belonging in organizations throughout the United States and in dozens of other countries. He is the author of Reinventing Diversity and the Washington Post bestseller, Everyday Bias. His latest book, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart, won the 2019 Nautilus Book Award award gold medal for social change and social justice. Howard was awarded the 2009 Operation Understanding Award for Community Service, the 2012 Winds of Change Award from the Forum on Workplace Diversity and Inclusion, the 2013 Diversity Peer Award from Diversity Women Magazine, the 2014 Catalyst Award from Uptown Professional Magazine, the 2014 Catalyst for Change Award from Wake Forest University, the 2015 Medal of Honor by the National Center for Race Amity, the 2015 Trendsetter in HR by Sharon Magazine, and the 2016 Leadership and Diversity Award by the World Human Resources Development Conference in Mumbai, India. He was also named an honorary medicine man by the Eastern Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina and given medicine holder designation by the Pawnee Nation. Howard has also been honored to serve as a contributing expert in both 2015 and 2020 to the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmarks by the Center for Global Inclusion. Howard is a sought-after keynote speaker and can be reached at That's u-d-a-r-t-a.com or www.udarta.com. Howard J. Ross with no spaces or periods dot com or directly at Howard at Udarta Hi there, this is Joe Santana, creator and host of ERG Power Talk. Are you getting the most out of this podcast? Is it turning you into a better version of yourself? A version of you that is ready to take on more significant assignments and opportunities in your career? Well, if you think you're ready to take your ERG Power Talk experience to the next level, I invite you to join us for this summer's 2021. One ERG Power Talk Virtual Academy. Learn the secrets to getting promoted 500 to 600 percent more often than competitors, becoming a happier and more engaging leader, defrosting any middle managers that stand in your way, and in fact, getting them to open doors for you mastering your emotions so that you can succeed in any situation and harnessing the persuasive powers of a Dr. Martin Luther King when you speak. If you are a member of one of the leading companies that I mentioned at the beginning of this program, then you're in luck. All you need to do is accept our calendar invite. Your company's sponsorship gets you a front-row seat to the Academy with no extra charge to you personally. You also get access to a full video recording of the program. But if you're not fortunate enough to work for one of these leading companies that sponsor the show, never fear. You can still secure a seat. Just go to ergpowertalk.com forward slash 2021 forward slash 05 forward slash 10 forward slash virtual academy 2021 and register as an individual sponsor. Again, just go to ergpowertruck.com forward slash 2021 forward slash 05 forward slash 10 forward slash virtual academy 2021. ERGPOWERTOCK.com forward slash 2021 forward slash 05 forward slash 10 forward slash one word virtual academy with no spaces and with no spaces followed by the number 2021. I'll be there to greet you personally with each of our guest instructors. Sign up now for massive early bird discounts. And we're back. Another important factor in the success of these groups and their ability to provide the benefits of both bonding and bridging is the group leader. What are some of the challenges that you see there? And how can group leaders prepare themselves to be more effective in providing support for both bonding and bridging? I'm, I'm glad you went
1: there because I was going to actually uh, suggest that we talk about this because I think, I mean, one of the things that we know about the whole field of diversity and inclusion is that one of the one of the challenges that we have is that most of us who come into this field are coming because of their own of our own personal wounding to some degree in my case my family's history in the holocaust and, and all the fa- all the lives that we lost in our family because of that inspired a whole generation of my family both of my sisters and i To get involved in social justice work and spend our whole lives working on social justice work in different ways. There are a lot of folks I know of color who are coming from their own pain of racism in their families or LGBTQ people who have suffered from homophobia or heterosexism or women who have suffered from sexism. And and in a lot of cases that's basically the real motivation for us is to heal what's going what's happened here inside. Now the challenge with that's that makes perfect sense from a motivational standpoint and why wouldn't we do that but the challenge with it is you can never really heal what's inside by only working on what's outside. We have to heal from within. We've got to do our own work on ourselves. And so I think the most important thing is that people have got to do their own awareness work, their own self-awareness work, to understand how is this affected me? What are my triggers? What am I trying to accomplish in this group? Am I trying to be right and righteous? and prove to other people how wrong they are, in which case you can almost guarantee that those groups will lead towards more polarization. Now, I'm not suggesting that the alternative to that is not to talk about difficult issues. We could talk about difficult issues without demonizing people. We could talk about difficult issues without without making everybody, as I said before, everybody the same. And so anytime we have, we get into stereotypes where we say all of this group, all Latinx people are this, or all white people are this, or all black people are this, or all Jews are that, or whatever else. Anytime we do that, We know that we're off off base because there is no all of anything in any group. And so that's always a good sign usually that person's coming from some wounding that they have with that particular group. So when people ascend to leadership in these groups, it's especially important that they recognize that their role in leadership is to move the organization forward, not just to justify their own points of view and justify their own righteousness. And, And that's critically important to have these groups be successful and really have an impact in the organization in a healthy way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I actually recall some work I did with you years ago in one of the unconscious bias learning labs where I discovered one of my own personal triggers and patterns. So, for many years during my career, I often found myself exhausted and yet unable to call it a day if I could still think of something else that needed to get done. Even if that task wasn't time sensitive, I would just robotically soldier on. And it was during that learning lab session where you asked us to consciously look for these triggers and automatic behaviors, that I realized for the first time that my mother used to have this saying, never leave for tomorrow what you can do today. And I remember sharing that with you during our lunch break and how I thought that I had just made a big breakthrough on my problem that I was having and putting boundaries around my work time. And I can tell you that just consciously recognizing that gave me the power to create a counter narrative because I thought what my mother said was good advice, but it had its limits. So my counter-narrative was, never rush to finish today, where you have plenty of time to do more productively tomorrow. And it was amazing. Since then, I've had more conscious control over that choice. So I personally recommend doing that type of personal inside development work for all leaders.
1: Yeah, I think that this work, I think the work you're talking about for me is essential. And it's true for any human being's development, not just around diversity and inclusion work, not just in terms of organizational work. And that is that we know that that the way our social conditioning Happens largely, our cultural and social conditioning happens is through the embedded messages that we get as we're growing up and as we're developing as human beings. A lot of these come from our parents, as the one you shared. And this is what Freud called, of course, the superego, the overriding socialization capacity of our ego structure. We like to call it, we like to refer to it as, as the internal Supreme Court, which is a language that was created by a dear friend and, and a Super facilitator, Michael Schieser. And that is because it's a lot of judges on the bench. And so we've got this internal judgment mechanism. So in your case, your mom said, never leave till tomorrow, which you could finish today. And so for you, finishing things becomes important. My mom grew up in an environment where, you know, it, the best thing you could do to survive because her family was hit by the depression and they had a little family store under their house. The only way they survived was if they all worked 18 hours a day to keep the store going. So for my mom, stopping just wasn't an option my mom's idea of relaxation was ironing while she watched the tv at night and so for in my family not moving all the time was considered lazy so i had that one deeply embedded into me some of these things are profound and they don't even come from what we thought so in one of the in fact in one of the unconscious bias learning labs that we did we had an african-american woman who was incredibly incredibly accomplished in her field she had two phds in social work and something related and had written a couple of books And she shared that she's never felt satisfied with anything she's accomplished. No matter what she accomplished, it was never enough, which is not an unusual thing for some people to feel. And when we did some work together, what she realized in tears was that her parents had told her, she was in her late 60s, her parents had told her growing up, not an unusual comment in African-American families, you need to work twice as hard to be seen as half as good. And as a little child, she had interpreted that as meaning that she was only half as good and she realized that at that moment and she said that no matter how much she did it was never enough because she still had this conversation and she was only half as good a month afterwards she called me and she said for the first time in her life she can really enjoy what she's accomplished she can really appreciate what she's accomplished because like you said she rescripted that dialogue in her mind and i think that's the kind of work we all need to do and it starts just by sitting down and listening what am I saying to myself? What am I criticizing myself for? How am I pushing myself? How do I feel the need to please people in order to survive as opposed to stand up for myself? All of these are different ways that we learn this internal dialogue that can really limit us in terms and control. At some point, it's a narrow and narrow path we lead until we have a way that we need to be. And, And that could be incredibly inhibiting to us in our growth and development.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. But the fact is that in Western, European, and Northern American organizations, that type of inside development work is often ignored. For example, I was once an individual contributor who got promoted into a management role, and I got some management training that focused on what managers do. And as I went further up through the executive career ladder, I was given additional training in enterprise level strategy and again, more techniques on what to do. But through all those years, I got zero with regards to skills that would enable me to build a better version of myself at a fundamental inside level, aside from anything that I pursued on my own. And so I think that this inside work is a really important important missing piece of the development puzzle in organizations, especially of value to somebody who's in an ERG leadership role. This is a great opportunity for that person in that ERG leadership role to do some inside work that's going to be really valuable to their ability to lead and sustain a bonded group that's also able to bridge as we were talking about before as well as preparing themselves for larger roles in the organization and also a better more fulfilling life.
1: Uh, no question, Joe, and and in fact one of what see one of the real traps about this pattern of learning that we're talking about is that first of all that most of these patterns have been embedded in us so early in life that we just don't know life Outside of it, it, it becomes. It's the language I like to use. is It's concealed by its obviousness. It's so omnipresent that we can't even see it because it's so omnipresent. But another factor, and your example is probably a good one, is that that in a lot of cases, these protective mechanisms that we've developed, because that's what they are, they're protection. They're to keep us safe. They're to keep us allowed to be successful in the world. To keep safe becomes our success strategy so in your case for example my guess is that if i interviewed people who you work with in your rise then you were very successful in your corporate career and and got to be very well respected i i know from the outside how how people feel about you and felt about you in that job my guess is what people would say is yeah that joe santana man he gets shit done he doesn't leave stuff hanging he he always completes what he starts and that that became part of your winning formula, your success strategy in life. And so the more we do that, for me, it might have been being willing to be outspoken. And that's, that. for some reason, I was encouraged and I was willing to be the person to, to say the things that other people wouldn't say. And so sometimes to my detriment, when I have right-wing people <laughs> chasing me down or stuff like that. But the point is, but both of those, of course, what can get lost is that every plus, and this is pure Jungian the psychology every plus has its shadow side so in your case the shadow side is you don't let go of certain things that so you should let go of and move on because you just got to get it finished. In my case, being willing to do that has meant that I've had to learn to back off sometimes and let other people step up because feeling a sense of protection is fine, except that I began to realize over the years that it was also not giving a lot of space for other people. And so that's been a lifelong you know, challenge of mine, which sometimes I'm successful with and sometimes I'm not to recognize that I'm not taking up too much space. And we could go on to almost anybody's winning success strategy also has that shadow side to it. And so it's the awareness if it allows us to develop it doesn't mean we're going to change completely you're still going to want to get things done but maybe you've got the permission to give yourself to realize that sometimes it's time to stop you're a runner if you're if your hip starts to hurt and it gets worse and worse you don't keep running before you see the doctor at some point you go and see a you know, friend of mine blew out their hip just that way he had to have hip replacement surgery because they didn't listen to their bodies because they were so committed to finish that marathon. It, it's really It really calls for that sense of, of deep awareness and understanding ourselves. And when we do that, and it also requires some humility, it also requires an understanding that no human being is perfect. We all have our, our light and our shadow sides. And the more we're willing to see them and look at them, the more we can continue to improve and grow as human beings. And the same is true in organizations. Because organizations similarly have a personality type that they want to endure, that we call it culture in organizations. And cultures are like human personalities in that they've formed so that the organization can be successful. And the problem is that a lot of times they get concretized and they don't evolve over time. And as we move into new eras, organizations need to operate in new and different ways. Some of those old organizations have failed. One of the great examples I think I cite in the book is Encyclopedia Britannica which was for 250 years, the gold standard for information for people. If you had a Britannica, when I was a kid, you were like, wow, you were really up there. Now, Encyclopedia Britannica is basically out of business for all intents and purposes. And the reason was they made a fundamental mistake. They thought they were a book company when they were actually an information company. If they had known that and acted accordingly, we would be going to Encyclopedia Britannica online now instead of Wikipedia.
0: Yep. So not only is it important for leaders of ERGs and BRGs who want to create the kind of places where there is a sense of belonging and at the same time an openness to bridging, not only do they have to work on themselves from the inside, they need to do the same thing with the personality of their group, since organizations big, like their company, and small, like their ERG groups, have personalities. If they want these to be able to benefit from both belonging and bridging, then they have to work on the ERG culture,
1: right? Peter Drucker, the great management guru, said for years, culture eats strategy for lunch every day, and this is really what he's talking about, that if the mindset The culture of the organization and our way of doing things is strong enough. You can put the best culture, best strategy in the world, and it will fail if it's too strong, uh, if the culture is too strong. It's a little bit analogous to what happens with people around their personal health habits. Like I've, at different times in my life, struggled with my weight. I know you and I have talked about that at different times. And and what I realized in studying that was most human beings who struggle with their weight know exactly what they need to do to lose weight. They, they know exactly the strategy they need to employ. It's not that complicated. You eat less, you eat slightly different things and you exercise more and you will lose weight. I mean, that for 90% of human beings, 95% of human beings, that will work. And people know that. So what stops us from doing it? It's not having the information or the strategy. It's understanding why we eat. In my case, the big breakthrough was that I understood how... Eating and stressors are, are related. When I get really stressed, I nurture myself by eating. And so I started to learn new ways to manage my stress. That's around meditation practice, through exercise, various other kinds of things. I'll pick up my guitar and play a few songs or, or whatever. And I find other ways so that I don't just reach for food. And similarly in organizations, we have set ways that we do things that have come out of, as I said before, out of protecting ourselves. But what happens is it's like we built a wall around ourselves to protect ourselves, but we forget to put a door in. So we're locked inside. And we can't get out. We've trapped ourselves in that way of being. So it's nothing nothing wrong with having protection mechanisms, but you just don't want to trap yourself inside of that protection mechanism.
0: Great points, Howard. And there's just no way that you and I can cover a topic this huge completely in just a few minutes of talking on this podcast. But I think you've opened a door here. And I personally recommend that our listeners read your book, Our Search for Belonging, How Our Need to Connect is Tearing Us Apart, as a way of gaining a deeper sense of this topic of belonging and bridging. I've personally read it twice, and I can tell our listeners that in each reading, I walked away with fresh insights. Are there any other resources that you recommend for those who want to continue the journey towards greater belonging and bridging?
1: It's interesting, since, you know, I started working on the book, the, the word itself, belonging, has really taken over. And there are a number of different organizations now that are starting to do some work around belonging. There's, there's a belonging institute and there's a belonging movement. And one of the best organizations or the best places I know to, to start is, is John Powell, who's a professor at a brilliant guy who's a professor at the law school at, at UCAL Berkeley has has started this otherness and belonging movement that he I mean, has a big conference every year, has a lot of people come in and I would say that's a great place to to turn to. There are other people similarly. I think that I think that there's if you want to look at political belonging, I'd recommend the work of Jonathan Haidt who's a brilliant NYU psychologist who who wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, which I think is one of the most important books for people to read in politics today as we pulled a lot of his research. If another person to research is John Cassioppo, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, but he was known as the doctor of loneliness and did a lot of research on how isolation impacts people. And a lot of that research of really understanding how isolation impacts us has led to some of the work that we've done around belonging. But ultimately, we can also link in places like cross-faith, or people like Tannenbaum Center, who are doing some great work on cross-faith understanding to bridge to do some bridging around religion. There are there's a bipartisan center that was created by ex-leaders in a political domain, the Republican and Democrat leaders who who have come together and are looking at ways we can bridge some of the political domains. So almost every aspect of life has some of these. In fact, I, I actually cite many of the organizations in the book. People could just use it as a resource to tap in to some of these organizations. And I think people are out there. There are people who are having cross, having dialogues and dinners across race. I think that, oh my goodness, e, EJ. Dion and David Brooks, who are liberal and conservative columnists, work together to create a whole movement of engaging people around the country in some of these issues. So I think there are a lot of really good people doing really good work around this. And if you start poking around, you'll find them. Um, I don't want to necessarily say this one or that one is the right one, because Sometimes they have different nuance, but I think that people who look around will find that there are a lot more people doing this work because I think that there's a real longing for many of us in this culture to be able to reach across this divide. And, and I think it's important for people to realize that doesn't mean that you can't have an opinion. As you know, I've got very strong opinions in politics and I have no problem speaking them out. I have no problem criticizing a politician for things that they've done, but it's different to criticize a politician who has decided to put themselves out there. And part of that game is you get to criticize them whether you like it or not, that's part of the game, versus somebody who happens to have voted for that politician, sometimes just because they couldn't vote for the other guy or the other woman in some cases. It's not because they necessarily, who are now thrown into that same homogeneous mix and assume that everybody, everything that politician does, they agree with. And I think we saw a lot of that on January 6th. We saw an awful lot of people who had voted for President Trump, who have now started to say, that was it, that went over the line. And we have to create space for those, for, to have compassion for people who realize that they've made mistakes so that they can come back to a place of, of mutuality.
0: Absolutely. And we both know that is no easy task for people on the right or the left, or even in communities that are seeking greater inclusivity within organizations.
1: We know, unfortunately, there's a lot of exclusivity in the inclusivity of the community. It was really interesting when, I, when the book came out in 2018, I got some you know, people on the right who criticized me for it, and then I got some people on the left who criticized me for it, because I wasn't being politically correct enough. I was actually saying there was humanity on the other side of this conversation, and they weren't all evil. And for some of my friends who were extremely on the left, it was like I was wimping out or something by not doing that. I consider it a badge of honor that I managed to piss off people on the right and the left when I wrote the book. I figure that means I must be heading in the right direction.
0: <laughs> That's great.: So Howard, for our listeners that want to reach you, what's the best
1: way? The the three best ways. One is on LinkedIn. I'm actually stepping back from Facebook for a while, so I'm not going to, at least for a while, maybe permanently, I haven't decided yet, but LinkedIn, I'm still alive on. People can also get two websites, howardjross.com or udarta, U-D-A-R-T-A.com. It's the name of our little company we created uh, after we sold Cook Ross. And it's, it's the Hindi word for generosity and compassion. So we thought that was a good thing to name our company.
0: That's great. So, folks, again, the name of the book is Our Search for Belonging. Howard, thanks again for coming back on the show.
1: Joe, it's always a pleasure to be with you, my friend.
0: Okay, so here's what I got out of this final segment of my discussion with Howard. One, ERG leaders who want to create and sustain groups that are effective at both bonding and bridging need to do their own self-awareness-raising work. Two, this type of work is not part of the regular management and leadership development offerings that you usually find in company catalogs. So you need to seek it out for yourself. Three, in addition to working on yourself to develop your personal self-awareness, you need to also carefully examine and develop the culture of your group to ensure that it, too, continues to be open and welcoming to bridging those who do not share the core traits of the bonded group. Four, this is not a one-and-done type of work, but rather a lifelong journey of self-development as well as group development. The good news is you won't find a shortage of resources to help you. And finally, five, just because we're drivers and champions of inclusion, we should never take it for granted that we know the absolute right and that those who disagree with us are wrong. That thinking paves the road towards exclusivity in our inclusive efforts. Brene Brown, the well-known author and research professor at the University of Houston once noted that a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. She goes on to say that we are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we're meant to. That is a powerful need, and one that your ERGs are especially well-suited to support within the organizational workplace by creating a space for bonded groups to connect. It's equally important, however, to make sure that in your collective search for belonging, that you and your group don't lose your ability to bridge to and include others. And to that end, as the leader of the group, You need to continue to develop your own capacity for bridging and including as well as your group's capacity in this area, even as you nurture your bonded members. If this sounds like a huge task, let me leave you with a story Howard shared at the end of his book. A man who is walking on a beach before the morning sun comes up spots a woman lifting something from the ground and throwing it into the ocean. He shouts out to her, what are you doing? The woman replies, I'm throwing these starfish that were brought in by the tide back into the ocean. If they stay out here, when the sun comes up, they're going to dry out and die. The man then looks down at the sand on the beach and sees thousands of starfish laid out all over the shore as the morning sun is just starting to rise. He looks at the woman and he says, surely your efforts are going to be futile. How can you possibly make a difference with all these starfish? The woman reaches down, picks up another starfish, and throws it into the ocean and says, it made a difference to that one. I hope like the woman in that story that you're moved to continue on your journey of making a difference to all those that you can reach. I'll see you next season with a whole new lineup of guests, fresh insights, ideas, and inspiration. And if you missed any of our earlier episodes this year, I urge you to go back and listen to them. All my best to you towards your continued success. Thank you for tuning in to ERG Power Talk. If you enjoyed and got value out of this program, please like us and leave a favorable review at your podcast provider's site. Also, invite others to listen to the show. By the way, contact me if you're looking for an ERG symposium keynote or a leader for your strategy workshop new chair onboarding and or ERG bootcamp. I can run these for you either in person or in a virtual setting. Also, for more great ideas and tips for your ERGs, get my book, Supercharger ERGs, 18 Tips to Power Up Your ERG Strategy on Amazon.com. I'm Joe Santana, and thanks again for tuning in.